Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great, Remastered, Episode 17, Out of Luck. So, the army was finally to return home, but, of course, it would be a long journey back. The first stage of this journey would take Alexander down the Indus. First things first, Alexander got together a fleet, well, a series of transports and galleys, on the Hydaspes. The plan would be to sail down the Hydaspes until it connected to the Ecasthenes, then to sail down that until it connected with the Indus, and then to sail down that. Now, Alexander was quite interested in where this would lead him. He noticed that there were crocodiles on the Indus, and the only other place he had seen these creatures was on the Nile. So, Alexander believed that he had found the source of the Nile, the Indus. Obviously, to Alexander, the Indus flowed south into a desert, where it lost its name, and it emerged by the Ethiopians and Egyptians under the name of the Nile. Now, this is just as correct as Alexander's belief that if he had carried on marching east, he would have soon reached the outer ocean, and then it would be a short trip from there to the Straits of Gibraltar. The locals soon told him that this was completely wrong, that the Indus entered into the Indian Ocean. I can't be too harsh on Alexander, though. It wasn't until the 19th century that the source of the Nile was discovered. Around this time, Coenus, the man whose speech we have just heard, died. Alexander gave him a magnificent funeral, and then summoned his companions and Indian envoys. He made Porus the king of all his Indian territory. I think Alexander must have given up his plans to rule India, and settled for placing as much of it as he could under the control of a vassal. Now, plans for the expedition really began in earnest. Alexander may have been going home, but he was still going to fight his way there. He split his force into three. One would be led by Craterus along the right bank of the Hydaspes. A much larger force would be led by Hephaestion on the left bank, while a small force would go down the river itself under the direct control of Alexander. Nearchus was made admiral of the fleet. You may remember me mentioning very early on that Nearchus was exiled by Philip II, and Alexander recalled him upon coming to power. I said that he would be involved much later, and here we are. Alexander offered sacrifices, and then the return march began. He marched quickly, reaching the Ecasthenes on the fifth day. He soon met hostile forces. Alexander was eager to reach the territory of the Malians and the Oxdraci, who, according to Curtius, could muster a force of over 100,000. Alexander wanted to reach their territory before they could prepare for him. Alexander led a force against the Malians after reaching the Akesthenes, sneakily marching against them from a waterless region. The Malians were completely unprepared. Many were unarmed and outside of the defences of the town. They offered no resistance and most were killed. He was able to place the town under siege without most of his infantry, who soon arrived. Alexander launched an attack. 
all the defenders were killed. Perdiccas had been sent against a nearby town, but this one had been deserted. He tracked them down while some managed to escape, most were killed. Alexander soon chased down and captured the town of other Malians, before advancing on the principal Malian stronghold, as most of the Malians had fled there. But, once again, as soon as news of Alexander's advance reached them, the settlement was abandoned. Alexander chased after them at such a pace that he left his infantry behind, moving on with just his cavalry. The Malians amassed on the far side of the Hydraotis. Arian says they were 50,000 strong. So, Alexander charged against them, darting across the river. The Malians fled, but upon realising that Alexander was without his infantry, they reversed and charged at Alexander. He struggled, but managed to hold up while waiting for the infantry, and once they arrived, did the Malians either A, stand and fight it out, or B, flee to the nearest town? If you guessed A, you would be completely incorrect. Of course they fled. Alexander, of course, chased, and Alexander, of course, killed many Indians, and Alexander, of course, placed the town under siege. As the day was almost up, he waited until the next day before beginning the assault. Alexander led one section of the army, while Perdiccas led the other. The Malians fled into the inner defences of the town. As there were no defenders on the outer walls, some of the men of Perdiccas's division, who were slower than Alexander's, thought the town had already been taken. Once they realised this was not the case, they began assembling their ladders and working on sapping operations. Alexander couldn't wait, grabbed a ladder, and decided to begin the assault of the inner city. He was followed by three people. The four of them made their way to the top of the walls, and Alexander was the first one there. He began forcing the Indians back, but Alexander's luck was about to run out. He famously led his charges, but this time it would go wrong. His men looked up and saw that their king was alone. They flooded onto the ladders, but too many men on the ladders forced them to break. Alexander and his three fellow soldiers, Peucestes, Leonatus and Arborius, were trapped. The Indians approached Alexander, and he was the target of every marksman. Realising he was a sitting duck, and wasn't accomplishing anything, Alexander leapt from the walls into the fortress, and into the melee. He placed his back to the wall, and cut down a party of Indians who rashly charged, and then cut down more. Eventually, the Indians backed off, forming a semicircle around him, hurling every missile at him they could. By this time, Peucestus, Leonatus, and Arbrius finally caught up to Alexander, and fought in his defence. Abrius was shot and killed. Alexander was shot. His armour penetrated. His lung was pierced. He continued to fight, but soon suffered a violent hemorrhage. Peucestes and Leonatus guarded Alexander, who was almost unconscious due to the loss of blood. Needless to say, things were not going to plan. The Macedonians outside of the town were panicking. They knew their king had 
dived into combat and their ladders were destroyed. The men tried everything they could to get to Alexander. Some men drove stakes into the clay walls and tried to pull themselves up, while others tried climbing on each other's shoulders. Those that made it up the walls slung themselves down and saw Alexander on the ground, let out a cry of grief and a shout of rage. They may have refused to follow him across the Hyphasis, but they still loved him. Soon, a fierce battle was raging in the town. The Macedonians determinedly protected Alexander's body with their lives. The men outside forced their way through the gates, a few at first, but soon a flood. Every single defender, man, woman and child, was killed. Alexander was led outside of the city upon his shield. His condition was critical and everyone was convinced that the death of their king was at hand. The arrow was cut out of him with tremendous loss of blood. Alexander fainted again, checking the hemorrhage. Alexander was kept under medical treatment. However, a rumour quickly spread around the camp that Alexander had died. Morale plunged. What would they do without Alexander, their brilliant general? They were in hostile lands with deadly tribesmen, trapped by impassable rivers. The army was soon convinced they were destined to die there. There was no hope. Once Alexander heard of the state of the men, he couldn't let this go on. At the first opportunity, he had himself carried to the Hydratos. He had his men assemble at the point the Hydratos met the Akesthenes. He ordered the awning over the stern be taken down so everyone could see him. The troops believed they were being shown Alexander's body. This changed once he raised a hand to greet them. The response was instant. The men cheered, many burst into tears. His guards brought him a stretcher. He refused it and mounted his horse. The men applauded so loudly that the neighbouring glens re-echoed with noise. He dismounted near his tent, and the men saw him walk. They crowded him, touching him. Wreaths and flowers were flung at him. Like I said, they still loved him. So, what was going on in the war then? Alexander was chasing down the Malians and the Oxidraci when Alexander was injured, so what did they do? Well, the tribes surrendered. Both of them. Well, that was that. Alexander continued his advance down the Hydratos until it merged with the Akesthenes, and then sailed down that until it merged with the Indus. Once at the junction of the Indus, he waited for Perdiccas to reunite with him. Perdiccas had been subduing the Abastani. Other tribes continued to submit themselves, namely the Carithi and the Osadians. Alexander also requested a world-famous city, one of the many Alexandrias to be built there by the governor of the province before moving on. He soon made his way to the kingdom of Musicanus. They had yet to pledge their submission, ignoring Alexander. Thus, Alexander surprised them by advancing down the river remarkably quickly. The king quickly submitted himself, 
offering numerous gifts, including elephants. Alexander forgave him. In fact, the territory would be used as a base to control the other Indians. Alexander continued submitting the other Indian leaders, defeating Oxycanus. He then advanced on the land of a foe, of Musicanus, Sambus. Sambus fled from his capital, but left his relatives to tell Alexander Sambus had fled not out of opposition to Alexander, but out of alarm that he had allied with Musicanus. After putting down a revolt led by some Brahmins and executing the leaders, Sambus seems to have been right to question Alexander's alliance, because Musicanus went into revolt, but this was quickly put down and Musicanus was executed. At this point, Alexander divided his force in two. Craterus would lead a portion of the army overland through Arachosia and Zarangia, eventually reuniting near the Straits of Hormuz, while the main force would be led by Alexander and Hephaestion down the Indus. The advance was quite swift, and they soon found themselves at a point, Batala, where the Indus divides in two. Alexander began to advance down the right-hand channel with a small force before he moved with the majority of his army, but he didn't make it very far. Fierce winds forced his ships to run aground. This wasn't too bad, though. Had they stayed on the river much longer, it's likely the boats would have simply fallen apart. New ships were built, guides were acquired from the prisoners, and a second attempt was made. This was more successful, and they got close to the mouth of the Indus. As well as being caught in more strong winds, Alexander was caught off guard by the tide, which went out and left the boat stranded. This was fine for the boats that landed in soft mud and weren't able to set off once the tide came back in, but not so good for those who settled on sharp rocks, who either fell when the tide came back in, or were smashed into the rocks. Alexander continued moving downstream, reaching the island of Seleuza. It was a good location for him to camp his army. It was large, with shelter and fresh water. Alexander carried on. An expedition for the expeditionary force, if you will. Alexander wanted to see the ocean, and did. And 25 miles from Seleuza, he found another island in the open ocean. He then sailed back to Seleuza, made sacrifices to gods he claimed Ammon had told him to sacrifice to. Then he sailed to the second island beyond the mouth of the Indus, and offered another sacrifice to other gods with a different ritual than the first. To follow this, he sailed into the ocean, offered sacrifice to Poseidon, depositing the bodies of the slaughtered bulls into the ocean. Thence he sailed back to Patala, where a fortress had now been constructed. He ordered Hephaestion to fortify the harbour and to install docks. Arian wonders whether Alexander was planning to make this a permanent base for his fleet. If Alexander had lived longer, I think it's quite likely that he would have returned east, and this could well have been a base for the fleet. Alexander now launched a second expedition down the other branch of the Indus. He wanted to find out which of the two would be the easier for the fleet to travel down. 
he soon made his way to the ocean. It was a much easier route than the first. The mouths were 225 miles apart, according to Nearchus, but Aristobulus says they were 125 miles apart. He had a small exploration of the area around the mouth for a few days before heading back, constructing another set of harbour and docks on the river, and left four months of supplies there with a garrison, and made every preparation he could for the voyage to the coast. If it could, I'm sure the fleet would have sailed for the ocean straight away, but it couldn't due to the monsoon, a southerly wind, a wind that blows from the south to the north, meant that it shouldn't sail until conditions improved in early November. So, Alexander set off with a portion of his army on foot, and left the fleet behind, to set sail when conditions improved. There were two main reasons for Alexander's march on land. He wanted to make wells for the fleet, and to subjugate the Aretai, an Indian tribe who had yet to submit to him. This was achieved quickly enough, and then he began his march into Gedrosia. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.com. Nominations for the 2013 Podcast Awards are now open. If you'd like to head over to podcastawards.com, that again is podcastawards.com, you can go over there and vote for this show. As you are probably aware, I do several podcasts, so if you could vote for the Arab Spring History in the Best Education category, that would be really great. Thank you. I'll see you next week when we march into Gedrosia and begin to get into the podcast's endgame. <laughs>